Hello, and thank you for joining the Feed the Ball podcast presented by Golf Digest. This is Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture at Golf Digest, and this is Episode 68 with Jeff Bradley. First, a quick note for those of you who might be new to the podcast, and I thank you very much for joining in. If you're on social media, you can keep track of the podcast by following me at Feed the Ball. I also hope you'll go to your favorite podcast provider, search for Feed the Ball, and push the subscribe button. I also encourage you to explore the show's archives, where you'll find, for no charge, at the click of a button, a deep well of fascinating in-depth discussions with the game's great designers. You can find those past episodes at feedtheball.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. And now, on to episode 68. The designer and course builder Bruce Heppner remembers, back when he was working with Tom Doak at Renaissance Golf Design in the early 1990s, The phenomenon of Dave Axland and Dan Proctor, and how word was filtering out about these two mysterious shapers, wizards almost, who were the -the behind-the-scenes forces building courses like Sand Hills for Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw. You can listen to that conversation in Feed the Ball episode 38. It's true Axland and Proctor were instrumental in creating many of the best Corr Crenshaw courses, especially through the early 2000s, along with a crew of talented specialists like Jimbo Wright, Jim Craig, James Duncan, and Tom Beck. But the real phenomenon isn't what they did, but rather that their reputation spread where it did, which is throughout the industry, as well as the fact that people who did jobs that were previously anonymous, like sitting on machinery and pushing around sand and dirt, could garner a reputation at all. Mythologies often develop around things that are beloved and bewildering. Cor and Crenshaw's boys, as they came to be known, grew to almost legendary status in golf design circles because of the quality of the courses they created and the method by which they did it. From this group emerged, like the lead guitarist of a great rock and roll band who moonlights as a successful soloist, Jeff Bradley, widely recognized as the industry's most artistic bunker builder. Actually, make the analogy that of the drummer, because Bradley is an accomplished drummer as well as a shaper. In creating the bunkers for so many of Corn Crenshaw's finest courses, he's made the work of building and edging hazards into an almost glamorous profession. Those of us who follow golf architecture Think nothing now of knowing the names of shapers and crew members working particular jobs, but that's largely because Jeff Bradley made it cool. He continues to be a pioneering talent who's played a major role in defining and popularizing the naturalist look we associate with Corn Crenshaw designs. He'll be the first to tell you he didn't create the chunked bunker style. Axland and Proctor and others were doing that before Bradley came along, but he expanded on it and gave it his unique sense of style and detail and proportion. A generation of shapers have followed and emulated his work. I recently met Jeff in St. Lucia, where he was beginning work on Cabot St. Lucia, the new Corn Crenshaw course being developed by Mike Kaiser and Ben Cowan-Dewer from Cabot Links. That project is temporarily shut down due to the coronavirus outbreak, so Jeff joined me remotely from his drumming studio in his Arizona home for a very entertaining discussion about the backstories of a number of Corn Crenshaw courses, the early days of the boys, and how we quite accidentally or by twists of fate, if you want to look at it that way, got into the golf and shaping business. So here he is, and I wasn't going to say it, but I am going to say it now. Here he is, the bunker guru, Mr. Jeff Bradley.
I'm not going to call you the bunker guru unless you like that. <laughs> Do you want me to call you that, Sir, <laughs> Sir Bunker Guru, or something? But I wasn't planning on it. I don't have any feelings one way or the other on that <laughs> nickname. It's it's served me well. Uh, I didn't come up with it, so <laughs> that that would that's that's cardinal sin number one in nicknaming is is if you give it to yourself. So it, yeah, yeah, no, that's it's not legitimate. Then don't. it was. Uh, I, I'll tell you how it came about, though. How? So we were at um. We were working at the Warren course at Notre Dame. So this was early in my career with these guys, probably late 90s, I guess. And uh, the dope team was working on something close to us. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where it was. It might have been up in Michigan, and that probably makes more sense. But at the time, they had a, a turf guy on staff. His name was Tom Mead, I think. Right. Yeah, and, Tom Mead. Uh, yeah, and they called him the fescue guru. <laughs> okay. So Tom could come over to the golf course one day when, when Bill was making a visit, and they were giving Tom a hard time about this nickname. And it, it just sort of rolled over to me as that as part of that whole, you know, Bill just never gives up giving us a hard time for anything. You know, any any opportunity he gets to embarrass us or tell a joke about us, you know, He'll, he'll just take advantage of it. And so he saw an opportunity with this guru thing <laughs> and started calling me that. And everybody calls me that. That's great. It was, so it was almost like a, like a hazing thing. He was trying to embarrass you. Yes. And it stuck. And absolutely. now, now everybody, you know, from outside or in the industry, you know, uses it as a term of respect and it started off as a joke. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's, that's usually how that stuff happens, but that's exactly it. Yeah. Yep. The thing you know about Bill is he's never going to really throw you under the bus. It's all in good fun. And it's going to be a light tease, not not something serious. I mean, he's got some serious stories about guys like me, you know, that he can, he can make <laughs> fun of me for that he would never do outside of the company of our, of our own guys. And those guys have heard those stories many times, so they, they've lost their luster. But uh, And I guess it's one of those things where you'd, you'd rather – him kind of needle you a little bit, then ignore you. If he's needling you, he, he's paying attention and he cares. Right. Where I, where I was kind of headed with that is, it, you're not, you're doing good as long as he's giving you a hard time. You know, if he, if he stops giving you a hard time, then uh, then you know something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're you're fixing to get a you're fixing to have a conversation that's not comfortable, which <laughs> rarely happens, but it does happen. You know, we're we're just men, and. uh not particularly sophisticated men at that, so <laughs> we, uh, I can imagine. You know, we've we've all gotten uh, in trouble, so to speak. You know, over the years, but uh, it's fine. You know, he's he's always right, and uh, you just have to take your lumps and and get your house in order. You know, and then we go back to building golf holes. That's right. Then then it resumes again. Yeah. We, we, you had a couple topics you said you wanted to talk about, and one of them was was fishing. And I told you I don't know anything about fishing at all. But I'm curious about, there seems to be a real correlation between people who play golf and people who love to fish. First of all, I don't know, do you like to play golf? Do you play often? I, I played Monday. Um, I can't say I enjoyed it that much. But <laughs> <laughs> In the wintertime, I play golf with a group of snowbirds down here i'm kind of a sub because i'm in and out of town all the time but uh i usually if i'm here i'll play once a week with them 
other other than those guys, I don't really play a lot of golf with anybody around here. I'm not real fond of the golf in Arizona. And maybe that's a little snobbery on my part based on the stuff that we've done over the years, but we just don't have stuff like that here. Even our stuff here isn't, you know, isn't like Friar's Head or Old Sandwich or Bandon Trails. You you know, it's just not even close. (laughs) Although I have a lot of options here, you know, a couple of renovations and... Talking Stick North is one of my favorite golf courses anywhere. I would love to have something like that close to my house. Well, it's, yeah, it's typically better than most of the stuff around here, at least in my opinion, you know, which doesn't mean anything, but, um, and I'm biased, but, uh, yeah, we, uh, we worked on that last summer. We redid the bunkers on, uh, on both courses. Did they get washed out? <laughs> I'm going to say yes, uh, for purposes <laughs> of talking stick. Uh, they needed a facelift. It'd been, uh, 30 years. Almost since we uh, since we built those things, so uh, they they needed to they had gotten really deep somehow. They were pretty deep when we left them, but um, I think they got somehow a little deeper. Uh, they were really hard for those guys to maintain, especially with a machine. Um, I, you know, I, I think back in the early days of this, a lot of times we did things to try and keep that sand pro from being able to be used. <laughs> Thinking that would get them to uh, to hand rake the bunkers, uh, we've since given up on that because it has never worked. And and that might have been through experimentation. You've right. discovered. Well, yeah, I mean it's a it's a resort, you know, run by a management company, and, and they're just not thinking like that, you know. So anyway, uh, when you go back to a, a project that you initially built, will you try to just? Uh, reconstruct the bunkers as you remember them the first time, or will you attempt to do anything a little different, jazz them up a little bit, or, or vary it in style somehow? Well, Talking Stick's really the only one I've ever gone back and redone my work on. So that was a that was a new experience for me, and we we approached it with a couple of things in mind, you know. Um, Making maintenance a lot easier was a primary goal of that project. Um, Obviously, just, you know, they needed to redo the drainage inside the bunkers. All the outfalls and stuff, as far as I know, were fine. I don't think they had to put any new outfall lines in. We, you know, we looked at a few of those things. Those guys used edgers on them over the years, uh, which probably softened up some of the the rough edges that we left and, and probably formalized them a little more than they, than they were, you know, in 1998. And so we did make some attempt to put some of that stuff back, but we had a a pretty tight schedule and a pretty rigid budget. So you had to be kind of careful, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot of, let's just blow this whole thing up and redo it. You know, we, we filled in some bunkers that weren't relevant anymore. Uh, we built some new ones, you know, with the technology and golf equipment. People are just hitting over, even even guys like me, you know, just hitting over stuff that we couldn't have 30 years ago. So there was a little bit of that. And um, there were some things that Bill still wants to do, uh, mostly on the north course. 
uh, that we just ran out of time and money for at this point. So we're hoping to get back in there maybe in the next couple of years and add a few bunkers here and there to, uh, you know, defend the holes from these longer players. So even at a resort course, that's something that's on Bill's mind. You know, I, <laughs> and I hate to speak for Bill, but uh, I don't know that it's so much on Bill's mind as much as it's probably on the owner's mind and the, and maybe specifically even the golf professional um, at, at any given resort. Uh, you know, those guys tend to be pretty good players. They tend to play with pretty good players. They've got young assistants who are pretty good players and these days just bomb the ball, you know. And so they, they go play with their with their assistants. They play with their buddies. And everybody's just smoking everything over the hazards, you know. And, it, you know, if you don't have a 495-yard par four <laughs> – those guys probably aren't hitting much more than eight iron into anything all day. And, and so I, I think a lot of it, a lot of the pressure for that kind of stuff probably starts with the golf professional at any place, you know, because I think they just see more of that than, than the rest of us do. I don't play with anybody who hits the ball like that ever, you know, it, it, no, it's, I rarely do either. Yeah. It's, it's not something I think about. Um, I think Bill understands it, you know, and and so he tries to accommodate those things as best he can, as long as it doesn't just destroy the strategy of the whole, you know. So uh, let's, let's tell, I don't know if anybody will know what this is, but maybe number five at Talking Stick North has a bunker in the center of the fairway, and you know that bunker is probably at 245 or 250 from the back. You know, for you and me, that bunker's in play, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so we need to pick a side, you know. For a 23-year-old, uh, you know, assistant golf pro, <laughs> he's looking at the green on that hole, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so what do you do? You know, do you, do you throw another bunker in down there at, at – you know, at 310, so at least that guy has something to think about. You know, maybe maybe he's going to take a three-wood and try to get it, you know, over the original bunker, but short of the, short of the new one. It, that's one way to look at it. It doesn't really affect you and I so much because now that bunker is, it's not really in play. We're going to easily get over it. The ones we have to worry about are the greenside bunkers. Uh, yeah, so, I guess it becomes sort of like an evaluation of, of the cost of, of building a bunker and then maintaining it versus how many people are you going to, it, you know, cause that bunker, as you just said, it is going to add another demand, a needed dimension to that hole for a, a small percentage of players. So right. you're weighing that, you know, that small group of people versus your, your upfront and, and lasting costs to see if, if it makes sense. Um, and I don't, you know, everybody's got to answer that question on their own property, I think. Yeah, and well, and the answer to that question at Talking Stick was, uh, it's not really worth it just yet. We don't have the, we don't have the time to do it. it really, it kind of came down to time. Let's talk about Seminole for a minute. How how is that project uh, unique for you? Uh, that bunker, that course is really interesting. It's, it's obviously a, a masterpiece of architecture, great setting location, the way the routing 
utilizes those two dune ridges and then plays across the, the valley. But the bunker style there had had kind of changed over the years. Just kind of maybe describe the pro- that project from your perspective and, and what you were trying to accomplish there. Well, you know, the, the, the vision that Bill and Ben had was, was, was a big, broad return to kind of the Ross original thing. Uh, you know, I believe the clubhouse had burned a couple of times, and so a lot of, a lot of information was lost. But we did find some old overheads, um, maybe from the 1930s, something like that. Yeah. And you could just see a lot of sand around those holes. Um, you know, most of them weren't really connected by turf like they are now. We wanted to go that far. Um, the membership wasn't quite on board with that far. <laughs> so we, we dialed that back uh, quite a bit. As far as just the sandy waste areas. we Yeah, the we spaces got, between the holes. Yeah, we got a little of it, and we lost a little of it. And we did some of it that they actually went back and grassed over, um, you know, at, at the end of it all. Um, those are compromises you have to make, you know. I mean, it, the, the golf course belongs to the members. It doesn't belong to, to us, you know. So at the end of the day, if they feel really strongly about something like that, then there's there's no point in trying to fight over it, you know. If you can't convince them, then you can't convince them, right, <laughs> Right. Yeah, just do what do what they like. But um, at Seminole was it was really fun. Um, I've I've been fortunate to be able to work on a couple of old great courses like that. Uh, Pinehurst not being one of them. I wasn't anywhere near Pinehurst, but uh, uh, Maidstone up in East Hampton was mm-hmm. a, a really fun project. And Seminole was similar because they they are so old and so classic and uh, so revered. And so the, yeah, the bunkering at Seminole had gotten pretty, um, I can't remember what Jimmy done, how he described it, but I, even if I could, it probably wouldn't be something I'd say on a podcast. <laughs> so, Nobody's listening. <laughs> that may be true too. This may <laughs> be your last podcast ever. Um, Shutting it down. Yeah. But he, he described it in a very colorful way. I, I don't know if you know Jimmy, but, uh, He's, he's yeah, he's been. He's the longtime. Uh, is he the general manager? He's the president uh, right now. I think that's a ten-year term. But uh, but one of, the, one of the most famous quotes from from Ben about Jimmy Dunn is that Jimmy Dunn broke the fourteen club rule a long time ago, and he's not talking about the clubs in his bag. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's talking about the clubs he's a member at. He's a well tra- well traveled man. He is. He is, uh, and a great guy. Just a lot of fun to be around. Um, you know, Bill tried to. He kind of tried to scare me off from that at first. He's like, I, you know, this this guy. He's a very intense New Yorker, Jeff, and uh, you know, just go down here and meet him. And you know, if, if this isn't something you're comfortable with, we'll we'll figure something else out. Uh-huh. And and me and Mister Dunn hit it off immediately. Of course, you know? I, I love a guy like that. You know, he's he's honest and he's brash and he's funny. And, you know, you you just knew that if he asked you a question, you better give him an answer. And it better be an honest answer because you might have to defend it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
was the hardest hardest ones. Damn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the last thing you wanted to do was get caught, you know, feeding feeding Mister Dunham bullshit. You know, yeah. That probably only happens to somebody once, right? <laughs> and then they're then they're eating it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, anyway, uh, not to get off on that on that kind of stuff, but but yeah, the bunkering had. Um, I can't remember who did it back in the fifties or sixties. Um, but they did there have those. been a lot of footprints on Seminole throughout the few. years. You know, Wilson kind of rebuilt a golf course at one point, I think, and then Yeah, there there there'd been several architects look at that and, and probably do some thing some little things here and there. But a lot of it was a lot of what was left was I think Wilson's work. And it just got kind of <sighs> Flaccid, I guess, is maybe a good way to describe it. So we, I sort of took the approach, the same approach, or, or same conclusion. I or reached a conclusion at Maidstone after about five or six holes, and that was that cutting those bunker edges up higher so that you could see the sand from the tee and from the landing area was really starting to set those golf holes off. You know, that at, before we got there, most of the most of the bunkers had grass faces and they were flat. Just, you know, mm-hmm. there weren't any flashed up. You couldn't see the sand? You couldn't see the sand. If, or if you could, you could only see a little bit of it. And, the, you know, the morning it hit me, um, I, I took a different route into work. And I had just done those bunkers on 18. Or, or they weren't all done because we added a few, but the, the two main fairway bunkers were there. And all of a sudden, that hole just lit up, you know. And I thought, this is this is what it is, you know. It's it's getting these bunker edges up high, so you can actually see these bunkers. And it just really added so much character to the golf holes that that had hidden hidden subtleties and stuff. But you don't really see that a lot until you get right up on those things, you know, or until they throw your ball some direction you weren't expecting. But, you know, opening up these, let's call them bunker views, really did a lot visually for those golf holes. And so, you know, I'm about a third of the way through them and, and, and sort of got that in my head. And that's how I finished was, was just with that idea in mind. You know, let's really accentuate these bunkers so that people can see them and so that the strategy is more e- easily revealed and I took the same approach with with uh, Seminole because they had a similar issue. Um, they did have some flashed up sand, but the stuff that wasn't was Bill, Bill called them like tongue depressors. You know, they they all kind of were the same shape and the same size, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, they they just became very bland. And um, so. Basically, I just took all of those out. I, I rebuilt some things like them or, or, you know, let's just call them a, a tongue or a, a nose or something. I built some other things, you know, so that the, the didn't really want to just completely change the character of Seminole. But that look wasn't really doing it for anybody. So I... Uh, <laughs> It's kind of hard to explain because you, you almost have to treat every hole as its own thing. You know, there's, there's you know, 18 different golf holes, so you've got 18 different sets of issues. 
and, and ways you have to work and ideas you have to come up with, you know, to, to make that particular golf hole more appealing to look at and more appealing to play. So it, it was different all around the golf course, but, uh, but that was one of the things that happened. You know, we really opened up those bunkers so that you could see the sand and, and it, it just brightens the whole place up, you know? I mean, grass is great. I love grass. And you certainly want to hit your ball in the grass. But, you know, when you're standing on the tee, uh, number uh, 15, which is that kind of short par three right toward the ocean. Or 13. That's probably in, is it 13? Yeah. I guess it is, 13, yeah. Um, you know, it's probably a short iron, on some days, but some days it's a three wood, you know, and yeah. trying to hit a three wood to that. <laughs> that's a beast. <laughs> I mean, it's just tough. It's, it's, yeah. Especially with the bunkers now, you know, that, I mean, the, the bunkers didn't get any deeper. In fact, I, if I recall correctly, I think we raised the floors of them up a little bit. So that shot's not quite so deep. How often on a project, will you kind of have that maidstone experience where you're moving along, you think you have an idea or a concept of what you're doing. And all of a sudden, after you're evaluating what you've done, or, or maybe something else, you know, gives you a key, do you, does the light come on? And then all of a sudden, it's very vivid what, what needs to be done there. I, and Derek, that probably happens on every job to some degree. Um, you know, they're all different because you're working with different soil types and you're going to be working with different grasses. Uh, you know, building bunkers in Arizona is a lot different than building bunkers on Long Island uh, because of the kind of grass you're going to use. So, you know, I take a completely different approach to how I do them. You know, so if, if I'm building a bunker in <clears throat> here in the desert, I'm going to build that bunker as close to what the finished product is going to be as I can. Uh, we're not going to get a chance to come back and really change it, you know? So you, you got to get it right before you turn it over to them to grass. If we're working up on Long Island, you know, I just whip out some kind of weird looking hole in the ground, uh, throw some seed on it and come back in the spring and, and cut an edge out of it then, you know, and that's that's the really fun way to do them. Um, you know, you sort of get two different looks at it, and with some separation. You know, if you haven't seen those things in three or four months, a lot right. of times you you know you've got your own fresh eyes. You know what was there. You know what you were thinking when you first started, but you're a lot more open to you know getting out of outside of that box. Um, you know the the scheduling pressures off and I just, I just find it easier to, you know, artistically, if you have a few shots at it, it, they tend to come out a little better, but there are environments where that's just not possible. You know, you, you just, you don't have that kind of freedom. How does the process work uh, when you're working with, with Bill and Ben? How much, I guess the question is, what are you taking inspiration from on any given given project, and what kind of instructions are you getting from Bill? You know, it's it's his golf course, it's he and Ben's golf course. I imagine he's 
figured out where he wants the bunkers, how many. Uh, is that the case? Do you have input into those types of decisions? Does he ask for a particular look or a style on any given project? Um, sometimes. Yeah. Um, I just asked you to kind of, in one question, <laughs> review your whole career. <laughs> right. Well, and it, it's a difficult question to answer because in some ways it's the same process over and over. And in some ways it's a completely different process everywhere you go. So I, I guess the best way to sum that up roughly is, yeah, they – they have these ideas about, you know, where the bunker locations are going to be. And um, a lot of that, we're just, they're kind of coming up with it as we're walking through the project, you know? Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll start on number one. We'll look at it, you know, and Bill will say, well, does anybody have any idea what we're going to do here? You know, like, like he's not even the architect, you know, it's just, what are you guys going to do here? <laughs> And, uh, you know, uh, sometimes people start throwing ideas out and sometimes we'll all look at him like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it it's different um, almost with every hole. But, you know, their, their general philosophy is to use the ground that they have uh, and let that ground tell you where those golf features need to be. And what they need to tell the golfer while he's standing on the tee, or, or you know, approaching the green. Uh, a lot of times, you know, you just don't have that. Which there's just nothing there to work with. You have to create it. And so, you know, th those are harder holes for us. Uh, you know, Bill's always said we're. It, we get this minimalist description, you know, and he says it's so true because if. You know, if we have to max out our dirt moving, we're probably not the company for you, you know. Uh, Dana Fry is probably better. If you need to move a million and a half yards of dirt. Exactly. You know, yeah. You're, you're probably better off hiring a guy like Dana, you know, who loves to move dirt. You know, he's all about moving dirt. I mean, uh, you know, I think of one of his, one of his favorite projects is this one he did in Naples. And he invited Calusa me down. Pines. Uh, yeah, he invited me down to play it with him, and and the whole time, you know, he talked about this ridge that he built, and you don't really see it till like late in the front nine, and and as you're finishing the golf course. But, you know, he did he moved so much dirt for that one ridge that it actually looked really natural, even in flat Florida, you know. And that's that's the kind of thing a guy like Dane is really really good at, and nah, to be honest, we're probably not. You know, uh, we're probably better at finding things that are there that maybe maybe other architecture firms wouldn't see. You know, and they might blow through it and do something completely different. I don't know. You know, it, it's all very subjective. Let's let's take an example of. Let's talk about Friar's Head because there's, you know, half that golf course was manufactured. That must have been, was that an agonizing process to figure out how those, those lower flatter holes were going to turn out since you didn't have any keys to work off of? It was more difficult. Um, 
we did have a, a few good things there, uh, and we had <laughs> we had the wit on a you know on a D seven. Let's and, explain that. That's great. He's talking uh, about Rod Whitman. Talking about Rod Whitman on a on a big dozer. Who's the best at that, right? You put Rod on a big dozer, and and you won't hear from him till the end of the day when you go pick him up. He's he's like a pig in shit, you know. He's just happy, <laughs> and he's going to do something incredibly big, incredibly wild, and incredibly good most of the time. And uh, so, like the second hole. At Friar's Head has that huge uh, swale in it, you know, from between the first and second shots. And, you know, Rod cut that big hole in the ground there and used all that material to do things on either side of it. Um, and, he, and he made some pretty big moves over on, I think it's 12, 13, 14. Maybe it's 11, 12, 13. 11, 12. Yeah, I think it's 11, 12, 13 which were in the potato field <laughs> also. And, he, you know, he, he made some big contour moves there that then Jimbo went over and added some, some details to. But he had a he had these big, swaley moves that Rod had done with a big dozer to sort of work off of. And so the combination of those two guys, you know, you got this this sort of wild Canadian guy who's willing to make big, huge moves. And then you've got a guy like Jimbo Wright, you know, who can take something like that and detail it out to a point where it, it's just phenomenal to, to just to look at, you know, but to play golf on is incredible, you know. So it just kind of, it goes from, from comp- nothing to uh, guys using their imagination. One guy's got, uh, uh, is moving a lot of earth with a big, machine another guy comes in with a lot of imagination on a slightly smaller machine to pull out some detail and then i guess you know there's other steps i'm sure but then you come in with and and you know kind of garnish it with your bunker style yeah and generally that you know the the bunkers would probably go in before jimbo does a lot of work on the fairway um you know he's going to make a final pass before we finish it for grass Uh, that's not to say he won't work on it before that he or, or Jim Craig or, or Dave or whoever, you know, whoever's there. Um, since I guess since we're talking about Friar's Head, we're kind of talking about an old school, you know, before Keith Reb even even came around. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's a very specific set of guys with very specific roles to play. And that's kind of how that worked. Um, you know, and the rounding, I tell you, the, the brilliant thing about Friar's Head is how Bill worked that golf course out of the dunes into the potato field, back up into the dunes, out of the dunes, back into the potato field, back up into the dunes. Uh, you know, so you get both pieces of property on both sides of the golf course. And that was really pretty brilliant. You know, we didn't have to do a whole lot up in the dunes, although those things were very severe. The way he routed those holes, um, a lot of the most severe parts of the golf course, you're just walking from one hole to the next. You right. Know? And so, you know, is there anybody in the industry better at riding a golf course than Bill Coor? I, I would be hesitant to say, no, there isn't. <laughs> you know, he's brilliant at that. And, and I'm not the only one that said that. I mean, nobody should take my opinion for being worth much of anything. 
and I work for the guy, so obviously I'm biased. But you know, I've, I don't I've think talked, you'll get too much pushback on that. Yeah, I've, I've talked to some other architects who who do that for a living as well, and and they're just they're just blown away by his routings. You know, they probably understand them better than I do, to be honest with you, because they're doing that. You know, they're trying to figure that out. It's kind of funny to think that there are so few people who are actually routing golf courses over the last ten years. I mean, all the new courses that have been built. You know, Bill's Bill's done a lot of them. Tom's done a lot of them. Gil's done a few, and there haven't been that many people who actually route golf courses anymore since they're just not being built. Well, in the United States, I guess that's true. Um, you know, a lot of them, a lot of golf courses have been built in China. I don't think any of them are open anymore. But uh, that's a good point. In yeah. South America, uh, you know, you're just trying to find land, you know, to build on in those cases. I'm not sure routing is the strength of any of those mountain courses. Uh, yeah, maybe not. Um, I shouldn't I talk. Know. I haven't been there. So. <laughs> I haven't either. I, that's just what I was going to say. I, I haven't really seen anything but pictures from any of that. And, and that you, it's hard to pass judgment on stuff like that, especially if you're looking at it and looking at the whole backwards, you know, from. 50 feet up, you know, some drone shot that's, it's taking a shot from the back of the green. Well, that didn't really tell you anything about the golf hole. You know, it may be a nice shot cause you got water in the background or something, but yeah. Yeah. It, that's it, not what you see when you're on the golf course or how you experience it. Yeah. It's sort of irrelevant. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's, let's do, an, let's do another golf course. It's the one you, you just left. You left Cabot St. Lucia, the Cabot point golf course, which is a difficult property. And that's going to take, uh, some some pretty big uh, earth moving moves on in a few places as as well. What's it like for you? And how far did you get with with? I know when I saw you, you were clearing trees, but but how far did you get along um, with with kind of figuring out where some of the the bunkering is going to be on that golf course? Okay, well, the I mean, the first question is really easy to answer because a few days after you left, I left. And came home because I'd been there for about six weeks mm-hmm. clearing clearing trees <laughs> and moving <laughs> the a rock. The bunker guru is clearing trees. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's work. You know, it's they work. offered it, so I took it. Yeah. Um, so I I didn't do too much. I did a I built a green on number four, um, just kind of a Redan style mm-hmm. idea, and and did some bunkers down there. Uh, but then I went home, and so Dave and Keith did a few things over the next ten days. And you know, when when you were talking about how, you know how do you guys figure this this stuff out, I, I was thinking about number two at St. Lucian because it was a hole that was I don't know if it's laying there or if it's something that the Nicholas guys had done ten years ago. But there was kind of a golf hole there, you know. There were tees yes. and. Um, I don't know how much, if at all, they manipulated that ground, but but it it was pretty good the way it was. You know, it just needed some bunkers and and a little highlighting, which Dave and Keith did, and it looked really good. But you know, we we just stood up there on the tee and we thought, okay, where do we? Where are you trying to? Where are you trying to hit your tee ball to get the best angle into the screen? And that's probably on the left side of the fairway. You know, but the left side of the fairway drops off into oblivion. And so, uh, you know, we decided, okay, well, it's the left side of the fairway, so let's put some bunkers along the left side of the fairway. 
So, you know, guys that just miss it, they're they're not down in the trees on a 60% yeah, slope in their pocket. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, or dropping a ball. Uh, maybe they get in the bunker and they they've got a chance to recover. But but also the theory of, you know, playing closest to the hazard uh, should give you the best angle into the green. And then on the other side of that golf hole there was a a mound of dirt that somebody had piled up there years and years ago which just looked like a perfect place for a bunker. And so uh, Dave dug one into there. Uh, the thing is, is does any of that stay? Uh, some of it will stay for sure. Some of it will probably go away. It's a, it's a moving, living process, <laughs> you know, and we'll, we'll mess with it for as long as we can afford to mess with it, you know, trying to get every little detail just right. Uh, as far as Bill and Ben are concerned, uh, before we let it go and plant it, you know. And I, who's to say that after we plant it, it won't change, you know. It won't change much, but, you know, it did a lot of things, some crazy things. I, I remember uh, one of my earliest experiences with uh, making radical changes after the golf course was planted uh, was at Cuscawilla, Um I believe it's hole number seven and we had planted the greens and Bill's looking at it and it's, you know, you can still see sand on the green, but all the, all the little track marks from tracking the seed in or they've all got grass growing up in them. <clears throat> and Bill wanted to do something there, uh, put some kind of little hump in the middle of that green and, and rusty Mercer just like Bill, that green's planted. <laughs> what are you gonna do? You gonna take a machine up there and drive all over that thing? How am I ever gonna get that to come out right? You know. And Bill's like, I, I don't know, Rusty. Just just think about it. I really think we need to do something. And uh, you know, at the end of the at the end of that visit, which was probably a pretty long visit because we were finishing the golf course, so Bill would have been there a lot. Rusty had taken some seed and put it in some greens mix in a bucket <laughs> and germinated it in a bucket. And they took it out and they, they put it out by hand and built this little mound. Uh, Rusty and Bill built this little mound in the middle of seven green with germinated seed and greens mix. <laughs> and it, it tied in perfectly. So yeah. they just they th there was grass underneath it, and they just basically added like a, a lump of grass dough on top of it and bled, <laughs> blended yeah. it into the rest of the green. Well, I would imagine they probably shoveled out the grass underneath it. Um, uh -huh. I I wasn't there for it. I mean, I didn't actually. I saw them doing it, but I was you know that was my first full job. I didn't have a clue where I was or what I was supposed to be doing every day. You know, I'm just an idiot. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna get to that <laughs> yeah uh, that's the best part of my life being an idiot but uh yeah i mean that it that was just one of those things you know i've never seen that happen again um and if it hadn't been a superintendent like rusty mercer you know bill probably would have gotten a lot of pushback over something like that but Rusty's just one of those guys who's, you know, he's just like, you guys build it and I'll, I'll mow it, you know, I'll figure it out. Uh, you know, that's probably bit him in the ass a time or two, <laughs> but 
but he's he was no different at stream song you know he was the same way you guys build it and i'll, I'll figure out a way to maintain it that's why he's who he is and where he is mm-hmm. well let, just let's wrap up cabot real quick okay. when you look it up that property which has so much uh drum drama to it it's so beautiful in so many ways it also has some real tough spots that you're gonna have to work do, do you know now or or does it change from from cabot to someplace else what you're going to do when i assume you'll be back and, and how are you going to approach that bunkering style uh well we'll we'll take a closer look at the bunkering style that dave did um and what i did and see which we think works best. It's it's a really rugged piece of ground, uh, really severe, you know, which lends itself to pretty wild bunkering, you know. And how would you describe the difference between what Dave did and what you did? Uh, it'd be hard to do from pictures, but I I think I laid out probably some some lines that were a little softer, uh, maybe more resort-like. And it looked to me like, you know, Dave had some different levels and some big fingers going on. I didn't get a real good look at him, you know, from those pictures. So it's it's something that we have to we have to revisit. But you know, Bill and Ben could just come up with some crazy idea. You know, I mean we're we're just getting started there, you know. Yeah. We a few of those holes are kind of laying there. Not too few of them, but you know, a few of them were, and uh, so Keith worked on them quite a bit. You know, over those two weeks before they shut the the job down. Uh, that that first week of that was the day I was supposed to go back. Um, so I, I've just been here in Arizona trying to catch fish and <laughs> not being very successful at that. And nobody pays me to do it. So you know, there's a there's a par three that goes out on a peninsula. And uh, it's really rocky out there, and it's kind of domey, you know. And is that is that? Are you talking about seven or sixteen? I'm talking about seven. Okay. And I think what we're going to try to do there is take a mini excavator up there and just do the whole thing with a mini excavator, rather than putting a dozer out on that, uh, you know, somewhat fragile ground. Yeah, you, um, <laughs> you want to be careful. <laughs> there's some concern about putting heavy equipment on a spot like that because we just don't know. It's probably fine, but if it turned out it wasn't, you know, somebody could lose their life. And uh, so we're going to have to tread pretty lightly on a lot of those holes, 7, 16, 17. You know, those are pretty uh what's the word i'm looking for they're fragile pieces of ground you know in in more ways than one and so we're going to have to work on them very gingerly there's also some stuff there that's so severe uh with the equipment that we had you just can't deal with it's going to take much bigger stuff to make huge cuts and huge fills uh just just to make it manageable from a cart path <laughs> standpoint. Uh, number five is a good example of that. I'm sure you stood on 5T and and looked down there, but but just yeah, over that. I don't, I don't see it. I can't envision it. Well, once you uh, you probably didn't see it cleared. Um, 
but once you get down there to the to the landing area, it's it's very severe, and it's going to take a big dozer and some big cuts to make it work. But it'll work. The problem is getting from the T to the fairway, because that that hill is so steep. You know, I couldn't climb it much to clear trees off of it, and it doesn't seem very safe to try and go at it from the top, unless you're just going to bury the trees under your cut. And I'm not sure that that's a good idea. You know to have that much lumber underneath the ground. Uh, it, it could tend to shift a lot. <laughs> yeah. Know? So how you do something like that, we're, we're still trying to figure out. Um, there's, there's some guys that are local, you know, that are used to dealing with that kind of stuff. And, and we're hoping that they can help us figure that out, you know, how, how to deal with those super severe areas that we need to make, even if it's not in play, you know, maybe it's getting from the tee to the fairway, you know, or, or something between that and the green that you're just hitting over. You know, how- Would that be less of a challenge if you were not on a Caribbean island? Um, probably, yeah. I mean, you'd probably have access to more resources. Um, you know, the thing about the island and, and the guys that, you know, who live there, they they know how to do that kind of stuff because they have to deal with it all the time. You know, every almost everywhere you go on that island, you've got spots like that, and they build houses and you know another golf course and and so it it doesn't seem to bother them too much. They I, I think the you know their response was, oh yeah, we can we can figure that out. You know, I'm like okay, I'm not even going to ask. <laughs> How you how you're gonna get the trees off that hill? I'm just I'm, yeah. I don't even want to know. That's right. We're gonna we're gonna leave for a, a couple of days and just yeah. go back and hope it's done. Yeah, and hopefully we're not having a funeral when we get back. You know, <laughs> for Al Capone. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was a, just so the listeners know. Al Capone was one of the local shaper guys, and he was a fantastic uh, equipment operator. Doesn't know a thing about golf, but uh, but he knows that island really really well. And uh, and he can handle the machinery really well. Uh, the name I'm not so sure about. I don't know why he calls himself Al Capone, but uh, he's a great guy, and uh, we'll utilize him as much as we can. I'm sure. Another another need to know issue. <laughs> Could be. Yep. <laughs> not gonna ask. Yep. <laughs> not gonna ask. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be challenging for us uh, to do that kind of stuff. We're, we're probably not the best at doing that kind of stuff, you know, so we're going to have to get some help. But then you got, you know, then you got the other 40% of the golf course where some really good golf holes are just laying there, you know, for us. So I, I think it'll be very dramatic in the end and beautiful. I mean, you saw the views out there, you know, looking off the Atlantic side of the north end of that ocean. It's, it's just extraordinarily beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're standing on a, on a tee, looking at a green with that in the background, it's, it's amazing. It's pretty rare. Yeah. Extremely rare <laughs> these days. You met the core Crenshaw team in, in, at the hot springs project in Arkansas. That That's where you lived at the time. Who, who were you at that time? If I'm not mistaken, you were just working the grounds crew at, at hot springs country club or, or they just hired you or something, but, um, you're a young guy who, who's Jeff Bradley 
at this moment in time? Uh, he's a ne'er-do-well uh, nightclub drummer who's trying to find a better way to support his family. And uh, so... Did you have some young kids at the time? I did, yeah. Very young. <laughs> very young. Um, you know, the, I was in the music business for years, and uh, as far as being a working musician, I was, I guess you could say I was as successful as you could be on that level, but it just doesn't pay, you know. I mean, I, I just work my butt off, you know. Yeah. For, for The hours aren't very good either. Years. Well, you know, if you're in your mid twenties, not that bad. I mean, I, I don't regret any of it. You know, it's it's a lot of fun for a guy. It's probably better for a single guy with no kids. That's what I was to, thinking. To be honest with you, but uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun, um, and I even did another tour of it. You know, not too many years ago, but, um, but yeah, that's what I was uh, working at Hot Springs Country Club sort of taking a break from music and trying to figure something out. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I, I didn't have golf construction anywhere near my mind. It it wasn't something I was looking for or had ever considered that it, that it was even done. You know, I didn't know any of this stuff happened. So I, you know, I'd been working there a couple of months, I guess. And, um, Working for Rusty Mercer, and <laughs> this is kind of a great story. I had to tell this story back in December at Stream Song for this this golf week thing because Rusty was there, and so I had to uh, I had to throw myself under the bus. But it's a true story. <laughs> okay. So Hot Springs Country Club, you know, it's it's a small country club in a small town, and uh, they had one big event every year that was a, a major revenue generating tournament for him. It was called the four ball tournament. And so a week before the four ball tournament, you know, we're all working our butt off to get the, the golf course, the Arlington, there, there were 45 holes there. So there was the Arlington course, the majestic course. And I don't remember what the nine hole course was called, but, uh, the Arlington was where this four ball tournament would be played. So we're working on it like crazy. And right before the weekend comes up. So the tournament Saturday and Sunday, you know, Rusty has us all there in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, and he, he basically says, guys, this is the most important weekend of the year. If you're going to be late for work, just don't come because we don't need you. <laughs> and, you know, me and all my, in my infinite wisdom, I had uh, gigs that weekend. I hadn't done any gigs in months, but I had gigs on four ball weekend. And so I go out and play my gig on Friday night, you know, from 9 to 1.30 or 2 in the morning. And I did actually get up pretty early, but I was 20 minutes late. <laughs> and so Rusty sent me home. He said, uh, just call me back next week and uh, I'll let you know if I need you or not. So I figured that was over. You know, I mean, I, I did exactly what he told us not to do. And... Uh, I'd been there for two months. I really wasn't that valuable of an employee. Um, you know, I wasn't used to working. I wasn't used to going to work at six. I was used to coming home from work at six. <laughs> so, you know, I, 
I don't, I don't think Rusty thought all that much of me, and he probably wasn't that upset that he was probably going to let me go. <laughs> but uh, I called him back the next week, and uh, he said, "Well, I tell you what," he said, "I'm going to. You're the only guy that 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 did that, and uh, I'm going to let you come back on it. But you know, you're basically on probation." And you're not going to be working on the Majestic course where you've been working on. You're going to go to the Arlington where we're doing a renovation. And that is where I met Dave. Um, and and then <laughs> I started working from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. six days a week, which just killed me. I you know yeah, I used to work in 20 hours a week, not not 60. One of the things we did was we, you know, we would take sod from around the green sites and move them to the like the next tee. So we were kind of working on greens and tees all at the same time, and just shifting that sod to keep our our new sod costs down. And all I was doing was was handwork or you know running a tiller or this roto terra thing, and you know that's that's not that hard of work except that fifty percent of the time you're looking behind you. You know, there's, you know, no, no turning on the green. You had to go forward, you had to back up and you had to go forward and you had to back up. And so it was, you know, the beginning of my back trouble, the beginning of my, my neck problems. Uh, and it was, it was pretty tough. And then the rest of it was just shoveling and raking all day. And it's hot springs in the summertime, you know, it's 95 degrees with 98% humidity every day. And, uh, it was, it was brutal. Uh, I still think back to that project and the fact that I got through that without quitting is amazing. Um, I, I don't know how it happened, to be honest with you. I just yeah, And if you hadn't have been 20 minutes late that morning, you wouldn't have been on that project and you'd have, uh, who knows where you'd be right now. I probably would have because that first week, uh, which is, which is kind of typical sometimes of these things where the, you know, you come in to do a renovation and you're using the, the superintendent's guys to do it. You're, you're going to lose a handful of those guys. They're just, you know, they're not going to gut off of a mower. They've been riding a mower for five years and start shoveling or cutting and laying sod. And, and that happened. You were, you were destined for it. <laughs> no matter what. I guess so. I As guess the grunt. So. I, I, it, it's just amazing that, that I could get through something like that, given where I, given where I was coming from. You know, like I said, I was, you know, I was used to working at night, 20 hours a week, 25 hours a week, you know, to this just incredibly hard physical labor, you know, 60 hours a week. And it, it was minimum wage, man. It was like five fifty an hour I was making, you know, I'm 27 years old. I got two kids and a wife, uh, I, you know, I was really, I was pretty sure that the golf business probably wasn't for me, but I hadn't figured out where else to go. And uh, we got into the bunker thing last. So we got all the greens and, and teas planted and all that kind of stuff. And we went back to do, <clears throat> to, to renovate the bunkers. And, you know, I, I don't know how far into this we were, but we were probably more than halfway done. And Dave at, just asked me one day, I, I'm trying to recall this, I'm, I'm sort of making it up because I, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but he, he said, well, what do you think about this kind of work? You know, like, God damn, man, it's hard, you know? <laughs> He's like, yeah, yeah, but uh, 
he said, you know, we've got this this project up in the Sand Hills in Nebraska that's going to open this year, and we really think it's going to be a game changer, and we're probably going to need some help. He said, do you think you might be interested in any of this kind of stuff? And, and I'm like, I guess so. He said, it pays a lot better. I'm like, well, now you've got my attention. <laughs> and so we talked about some of that, and he, he really got my attention. And um, he said, well, I'll tell you it, what. It was, I, more than, it was more than five whatever an hour. It was four times what I was making. <laughs> You know, that's significant enough to start. Yeah. yeah. To get you to go to Nebraska. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he, he had to go to Riviera to do something. And he said, I want you to, to take a shot at this group of bunkers. And I said, Oh, on the, on the machine. He's like, yeah, yeah. I, we'll, we'll spend this afternoon. I'll show you how to run it. It's not that hard. It was a, a backhoe. You know, I, I can't run a backhoe to save my life anymore, but that's what I started on. And, uh, so, you know, he was gone for three or four work days probably and came back and I had kind of just kept doing what he was doing. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing, obviously. I was just sort of trying not to get in trouble <laughs> and learn how to run the machine. And and he really liked what I did, you know, and so he let me like do the next one, you know, while, while he was there. And he said, all right, I... He said, you know, there might be something here. I mean, obviously, it's up to, to Bill. And I had met Bill, but I didn't know Bill, you know. I mean, I was I was like everybody else, you know. When you talk about Coor and Crenshaw, the name you recognize is, is and Crenshaw. You know, who's who's Bill Coor? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and I was the same way. You know, I was really enamored with Ben Crenshaw. I didn't have a clue who Bill Coor was, you know. But <sighs> I was starting to figure out that maybe he was the guy you know, more so than Ben. Ben was, you know, the celebrity, but, but Bill was really the guy. And, uh, so Dave said, well, here's what, here's what I'm going to do. He'll, he'll be out here next week. I'm going to walk around with him and I'm going to show him what you've done and, uh, and we'll see what he thinks. And they did that. And, um, Bill never said anything to me other than, you know, this stuff looks really good, Jeff. Thank you so much. And, And that was kind of it. Uh, you know, very much like Bill, you know, going to be very nice, but he's not going to commit to anything. And uh, so at the end of it all, I was, I was like, well, what do you think? And he's like, well, he said, he said, there might be some potential there. You know, he's, he's going to talk to Rusty about you. <laughs> I said, well, that can't be good. Oh, great. He goes, <laughs> may not be, but uh, you know, it's, he's, he's got to do that. You know, like, well, okay. And uh, I don't know what Rusty told him about me. I, you know, I'm sure Rusty told him, oh, that guy ain't worth a shit. He ain't worth killing, you know. But <laughs> Take him. <laughs> yeah, take him. <laughs> Bill's like, no, I don't want him either, you know. But uh, what it came down to was uh, there might be something for you, you know, next year or whatever. And actually, the Sandhills wasn't opening that summer. It was opening the next one, I believe. But Dave called me in the winter and he said, look, uh, I need some help in Nebraska. It's going to be freezing cold and blowing 60 miles an hour. And you're just going to be on a tractor bringing me material for 90% of the time. But there's a few bunkers up there and Bill wants to see what you can do 
with this kind of stuff because it's mostly going to be handwork and creating stuff with chunks of grass and he said but you'll get a little bit more equipment experience and we'll see if you know if you've got something that we can use and so I went and did that for 750 an hour so I was moving up in the world and uh, you know mostly that hard work that driving the tractor in the wind uphill both ways <laughs> It, four blizzards over seven weeks. I mean, it was just brutal, Derek. It, you know, it just kept getting worse for me. <laughs> what, so what's, what season was this? This was spring. <laughs> I guess that, that's why they don't open until what? Late, Sometime Memorial Day now. <laughs> yeah. No, it, was, it was like mid-April to the end of May. Something oh like God. that. Yeah. yeah. It's a harsh climate. Yeah. It's brutal. Like I said, four four blizzards. In uh, in the seven weeks we were there, um, you know, we were we finally got to where when they were coming, we'd go down to North Platte and just stay in a hotel room so we wouldn't be stuck. Because I don't know if you've been there, but the cabins are down by the river. Yeah, and so you get fourteen inches of snow. Well, you're not going anywhere. There's no way you're getting up that hill in a car unless no. you walk. And then there's nowhere to go once you get up there, you know, because the, the restaurant wasn't open. Nothing was open. There was nothing there. Just these empty buildings. <laughs> and Jim Kidd. You might as well have been the cattle. You might as well have been. The cattle were better suited for that than we were. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we got through it. And finally, the weather kind of broke in in late May. And uh, Dave gave me a couple of these little projects to work on. And so I spent about the next week doing that. And, you know, taking a skid steer and getting chunks of native grass and putting them up on things and so the- let me interrupt you real quick here. So this is this part always fascinates me. Um, and you had just gotten there, but they had already developed this sort of chunking style look at Sand Hills. To your knowledge, and and I think that I've heard this was that developed on site, and, and maybe people back in the twenties were doing this too. But up to that point, you know, that was kind of an original look in or a way to build a bunker to get that those grassy edges. Was that developed on site at Sand Hills by? the core Crenshaw team? I'm going to lie and say definitely yes. Core and Crenshaw team came up with that whole idea and everybody else copied it. <laughs> I don't really know. I, I think so, but I, I'm not well, there's, sure. Well, there's the great story about um, how Dick Young's cap drives by and he's, you know, he sees Dave, you know, he drives by a couple times a day and Dave's just kind of staring at this bunker not knowing what to do with it and then he starts to take material and add it to the edge. And youngest cab is, tells Bill, what the hell is that guy doing? He's, he's takes stuff's out of the bunker and now he's putting it back into the bunker. What's he doing? And that was yeah. how I heard it, how the, the, that method or, or that look developed. I, I wouldn't be surprised at any of that, especially the way Dick Young's cap may have reacted to it. Uh, that sounds just like him, you know, yeah. to just, call you nuts <laughs> and scare the shit out of you so they but they taught you this this chunking method when you yeah. got there yeah dave did um they did yeah yeah he said, just just build an edge with this stuff you know go out in the pasture there and take the front end of this loader and s- scoop it in the ground about six inches to a foot grab you a big chunk of grass come back and put it on the edge of that bunker and then get out and move that grass around until it starts to look like something that 
you know, that you see blown out naturally. And we did a lot of studying on those, those natural blowouts that are, are all around the golf course. And then, you know, they're all over that whole area and, and tried to mimic those natural blowouts as much as possible. So I had a pretty good, um, amuse, so to speak, you know, or something to copy. Yeah. You know, it was easy to see what they were looking for. It was, it was right there. All I had to do was get a, you know, get the binoculars out and just look because there was going to be one. It may be 1500 yards away, but there's going to be one to look at wherever you were. And, uh, so we did that kind of stuff. And then we took that same sort of process and, and on a much smaller scale, did it with some turf on some green side bunkers. And then it was just kind of all up to Bill. You know, there wasn't much else to do. And by the time Bill got there, all that stuff was, it was there for him to look at. And, you know, I was back to hauling gravel and clay for Dave's cart bath, up, you know, against the wind and uphill in the snow. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Bill came through and looked at it. And I didn't hear much from him for a day or two. You know, he just kind of milled around and said hi. And I didn't ask, you know, but... I, I, right before he left, he uh, he came out and got me, and we sat in the car, and, and he said, well, do you have any interest in doing this kind of stuff? And I, I said, yeah, you know, I, I think I do, Bill. I mean, I don't know anything. You know, I read these books that Dave brought me. You know, they're Donald Ross books, Tom Simpson, and Alistair McKenzie. I read all those books, and none of it made a whole lot of sense to me, but I read them more than once because there wasn't anything to do. And uh, I said, I guess, you know, if you think I can do it, I mean, certainly an upgrade financially for me, you know, it would make a huge difference in my, in my family's life. And uh, he said, well, I don't have anything to do right now, but I'll call you back um, in about six months. I think we might have something to start on in a year from now. And, uh, before he left, he bought me a set of irons. <laughs> it was uh, it was a really nice thing. So really, yeah, I you know I was playing golf with like Walmart irons. I mean, I was a drummer for a living. I couldn't afford you know seven hundred dollars for a set of irons. But um, I had been talking to uh, to Jim Kidd, who was the pro there. You know, when when the place opened, and you know he he had looked at these irons that I wanted and. He said, well, I, you know, I can get them for you at my cost or whatever. But that was still 450 bucks. You know, it, it was still a week's pay. And I just told Jim, I said, I can't afford them. You know, thanks a lot. But I can't afford them. Uh, Bill leaves. You know, we're all working. And a couple days later, Jim calls. You know, he waves me into the office there. He says, I got something for you. Like, what's, what's that? So just come over here. I go over there and there's this Tommy armor box. And uh, he said, open that up. And I opened it up, and it was those irons that I'd wanted. And I said, man, I told you I can't afford these. He's like, you don't have to afford them. They're paid for. I said, what do you mean they're paid for? He said, they're paid for. I said, well, who paid for them? He said, Bill. <laughs> I was like, you got to be kidding me. He's like, no. He, he wanted you to have them, so he paid for them. So, uh, you know, I, at the end of that deal, I felt like I had at least done something. Yeah. That's a pretty good indication that you've been, you know, that was, your work has been approved. Yeah, I mean, you know, I could see Bill doing something like that, even if he wasn't going to hire somebody, just 
understanding that, well, you know, the guy did some pretty nice stuff. We're probably going to keep it. Even if he's not going any further than this, it's probably worth, it's a nice gift, you know. Uh, none of it came with any guarantees. You know, it was just, it was just a nice gift. And uh, so that was that. I finally got out of there, got back down to hot springs and 98 degrees, 98% humidity. <laughs> I, um, I didn't go back to work at hot springs for a while. Uh, I did go back right before I started at Cuscawilla. So I, Bill, Bill had called me, you know, over the holidays or whatever and said, if you're interested in this job in Georgia, I think we could, we could use you. We'll pay you this and, and a place to live and all that. And that's, that's great, Bill. I'll, I'll take it. I'll do it. Uh, but I, you know, I was playing music again. I wasn't making any money. <laughs> and, uh, so I went back to Rusty and, uh, there, there's, there's more to that story than, than's probably worth telling, but I kind of went back with my tail between my legs and, and just asked him if I could work. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, I'm going to Cuscawilla too. I was like, oh, great. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Ah, well, Rusty, Rusty scared me to death back then, you know. Yeah. Not that he doesn't on occasion still, but, you know, he was just a very accomplished guy. And you could, you, he knew, you know, he was smart. You knew he could see through your bullshit. And, and so he, he scared me a little bit. But he, uh, he, he let me come back to work. He, he didn't, um, I, I had quit over some issues, you know, before, and he he did not mitigate those issues for me in any way whatsoever. He threw me right back into the same fire, <laughs> and I went back to doing the shit that I didn't want to do. Uh, but it was it was for a short period of time, and uh, on some particular day, I don't remember what it was in the springtime. I went and picked up Rusty at five o'clock in the morning in his big huge house. And we drove to Cuscawilla, and the rest is history. I'll let you tell the story, but that's that's really the place that put Jeff Bradley on the map as somebody who had a special skill in building bunkers. Now, I don't know how much skill was involved in all of it, Derek. Uh, well, how could there not be? <laughs> I mean, well, the Cuscawilla I mean, bunkers are, are a, unique in golf. Part they, of it's the red clay, but but the the edging on that had probably you know it was so for a a golf course that was a going to be played by a lot of people. It was a resort course at the time. It's private now. Um, it was going to get seen a lot and it got photographed a lot. And it was just, it was so striking in, in the color and, and the edging. Uh, so, I mean, I don't think that happened by accident. Uh, no, it didn't, it didn't happen by accident. There were a lot of, uh, there was a lot of leadership, you know, on the, on the part of Tom Beck, who was the construction superintendent and uh, Scrooge and Mike McKay and even Jimbo. Um, and Scrooge is Jimbo's cousin, and Mike was somebody who'd been working with Bill since way back in the South Texas days at Waterwood, and whenever that other one was. Uh-huh. You know, so those guys knew what they were doing. And, and they, you know, at, at that point, that time in history, the, the Dozer guys, Jimbo and Scrooge and Mike, would basically rough those bunkers in so they would they would basically kind of cut a hole in the ground and, and and track it in and build up the backside 
tie it into the fairway and all that kind of stuff. And I, basically all I did at Cuscawilla was go in and cut some edges, maybe move some dirt around, build some humps or bumps on top. But, you know, I was still pretty new at what I was doing. <clears throat> and, and I wasn't a very good operator. And so I, so I, I think it's a combination of, yeah, there, there, you know, there's a lot of artistic stuff that came out of me there. There's also a lot of ignorance that, that just made some of that stuff possible. Blissful ignorance, you know, just not really knowing what I was doing or, or, or any better in some cases. And it, it came out very unique. That's, that's true. It, it was, uh, I think, startling to the golf industry at the time. And some people embraced it, and a lot of people didn't. Uh, that's always the case. And you know, I can remember in the early days of that golf club atlas, which you're probably familiar with, which uh, it was an architecture discussion group. And you know, I used to get on there, and they they talk about things like Cuscawilla and talking stick and and the Warren course. And I learned pretty quickly that there was a faction that loved the kind of stuff the minimalists were doing and there was a faction that hated it. <laughs> and, you know, as, as good as we thought it was and as important as we thought it was to sort of change the direction of golf architecture, we were very much in the minority industry wise. Now on golf club Atlas, not so much that was made up of people who, were interested in the throwback to the the early era of American golf architecture. But outside of that, there were a lot of people who just thought it was insane. You know, how do you, how do you maintain that? And why is it so brown? <laughs> Those bunkers are unmanageable. Those greens are unputtable. It was, you know, it just well, wasn't you everybody's that cup now? of tea. It's so, we've come so far since those days, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s. Minimalism has won the day. And if not minimalism, at least a, a look of minimalism, naturalism has come to, uh, you know, e even guys who, who weren't working in that mode and didn't produce courses and firms who didn't make courses look like that adopted that look no matter where they were, whether it was on sand or heavy soils or whatever everybody's trying to kind of not everybody but most most people tried to emulate that look so that conversation is really you, your work helped swing the pendulum into this place now where it's it's almost more interesting and unique to see a golf course that isn't trying to look like it just arose from nature and your bunker work had a lot of, to do with setting that precedent do you do you claim credit for that <laughs> do you want to uh, do you want to put your plant your flag there not just my flag, no. <laughs> of course not. No, I would, say. I would plant a flag with my brothers in arms, you know, with uh, Bill and Ben's name on it or their their logo or whatever. Uh, I think you'd also have to, you'd have to allow, you know, Renaissance Golf to plant theirs and Gil Hance to plant his. Because uh, we, didn't, we didn't do it alone, you know. Bill and Ben may have had more influence on it on a broader scale, you know, but because of Ben's reputation, but it, it took a long time for that to start to happen, you know, and it, it took a lot of press 
and and even today, you know, it's it's not. It may be accepted, Derek, in the circles that you run in, uh, and and that I run in, and the you know most of the people I talk to, but outside of those circles, uh, there's there's still some people who just don't get it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I tell the guys all the time because I play golf with a lot of people who aren't in the golf business. In fact, most of my golf. And uh, it's it's funny when I take them to one of our golf courses, uh, a lot of them think it's really hard because the greens are tougher. The, the stuff around the greens is tougher. You know, there's a real emphasis on the ground game, the short game, and putting on, a, on any core and Crenshaw golf course. Those are the things. You're going to get a lot of room off the tee. You know, we're going to try and give you that. You're going to get, you're going to have a better advantage if you can control your ball and get it on the right or the, the correct side of the fairway based on where the pin is. But if you miss it, you're probably going to be in the fairway or at least be able to, you know, take a shot at the green from wherever you are. But <laughs> if you don't hit it, you got a lot of work cut out for you. And so, you know, my buddies find that stuff frustrating and uh, hard to play. Uh, they don't see the charm in it. You know, they're used to they're used to very flat greens with two percent breaks and and uh, everything sloping down into the green instead of sloping away from the green. And so, it's it's not for everybody. Believe me, uh, I've you know I've taken a lot of grief. <laughs> I can't believe you guys do this. And I, you know, this is talking stick south. You know, this is fairly benign. You know, compared to Friar's Head or exactly or Bandon Trails or you know Old Sandwich. You know, this is this is nothing. You guys aren't seeing nothing, and and they just they just don't get it. You know, and they don't find it appealing, and and that's okay. I've, I've got some friends in Hot Springs, uh, my best friend and my financial advisor, who love this stuff. You know, and so every chance I get to take those guys somewhere, you know, that's that's always a lot of fun because they really get into it. Uh, they've both been to Dallas and played uh, Trinity Forest, and I'm hoping this year that we can go up to Branson and give that a, a go. And, uh, you know, those guys get it, but even my dad didn't get it. You know, <laughs> I took my dad. He was uh, my dad was a minister. And uh, he was doing a revival or something up in South Dakota. And it just happened to coincide with a visit I was doing at the Sand Hills to put probably just to put some sand back in bunkers that had blown out over the winter. So my dad stopped on the way to this revival thing he was doing in South Dakota and we played the Sand Hills. And it just beat the snot out of him, you know? He, he just he couldn't get the ball to the fairway and then he couldn't find his ball. and. You know, he, he couldn't he couldn't do anything less than three putt, <laughs> and the wind was howling. You know, thirty five, forty miles an hour. At the end of the day, he was just like, I don't know, Jeff. That's just it's awfully neat looking, but gosh, that's hard to play. <laughs> yeah, I said, well, it, yeah, it was kind of a tough day, and it's you've never seen anything like this, and you know, yeah, it's you know, the Sand Hills is not a gimme. I mean, it's it's pretty tough golf, especially if the wind's blowing. Not everybody enjoys, I guess is my point here, Derek. You know, yeah. there's, 
if you if you get outside this circle, you know that that I live in, and, and I don't I don't know exactly what the circles are you, you run in, but you know I listen to a lot of your podcasts. Similar, and, I'm yeah, sure. That's, that's you know kind we're of both in, in the same cloud. Right, right. That's kind of my impression. So, if you get outside of that and put the stuff up, you know, against that other opinion or an un an un, almost an uninterested opinion, right? You know, guys who don't really think about the golf course architecture, they just you know, they want the greens to be smooth and they want the fairways to be mowed and you know, they hardly even notice the humps in the tees because the tees haven't been redone in 25 years. It doesn't really bother them that there's a crown on the tee box. You know, but but as long as the fairway's smooth and the greens smooth and the bunkers are all raked out, you know, they they this is a great golf course. That's golf. Yeah. That's what golf is. It's fantastic. You know, it's, it's just funny to think about. And again, like you're right, this goes back to the environments that we we populate. Is to think of there was a time when the work that you do and the work that your contemporaries do were was out there and exotic and strange and so different. Because it even though a lot of people still don't aren't familiar with it or don't enjoy it or, or whatever, however you want to describe it. it. It has infiltrated the profession to an amazing degree. I mean, it, it so yeah. at least within golf circles and golf publications, we know if you want to talk about rankings and cover stories and all that, I mean, the work that, that you and your contemporaries pioneered has really won the day. And well, I would, I'll, I'll use this as an opportunity to ask you a question. Your work in particular, because you were on the vanguard of of creating shaping styles and looks and textures, uh, notably in bunkers, at the cutting edge, you were at the at the vanguard of that. And now there's a, just a generation of of shapers who are out there doing the same thing for a variety of different different architects on different projects. Do you take pride in sort of leading that and 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 pioneering that look and and being able to set an example? Uh, for other people to follow or are you like damn it that's my thing why is it why is everybody trying to copy me <laughs> well, I, I listen to a lot of item corolla podcasts and they have a little <laughs> game called uh, uh what, i can't remember the guy's name uh, he was one of the producers and whatever his name is shits on your point um <laughs> I, I hate to shit on your point but to be honest with you derek you know, the guys in Coor and Crenshaw who were there before I was, and this is, you know, this goes back to 86 and 7, uh, Tom Beck and uh, Dan Proctor and Dave Axlin, you know, those guys were doing that kind of work before I was ever involved. Um, I learned it from, I learned it from Dave, you know, and Tom. And, and a lot of the stuff about the, you know, the broader picture from, from Jimbo and Scrooge and, and Mike. And, of course, a lot from Bill and Ben, you know. But when you're – you really learn most of what you learn with the guys that you're with on the site six days a week, you know. And those guys were great about, you know, helping me along and, and teaching me what construction was all about and learning about equipment learning how to survive that environment because it was a much different environment than, than being in a band, you know. Um, it, it, it's similar in a lot of ways. You know, you've got a lot of creative people on a, I wouldn't say the same small space, but, <clears throat> you know, a limited amount of space trying to come together 
and create something from their own angle or their own instrument that that produces a product together. So there are some similarities in in the overall theory of it or process of it. But you know, being a construction guy and being a drummer in a band are two different things. <laughs> and you you have to behave differently. You know, you can't get away with being a pre a prima donna in in on one of our on one of our sites. If you are, you're not gonna last very long. You know, we've had some guys come through that that thought that way and they they didn't come back, you know. Um you have to you have to learn to be humble. You have to learn to accept that a lot of what you do is not gonna last. You know, it's gonna get edited down either by Bill and Ben or or some other thing. Um Sorry, I was trying to shit on your point. Uh, <laughs> You're being way too diplomatic. <laughs> well, I what I was going to say about that is it, it was going on long before I got there. Kapalua originally, and there's not too many pictures of it back when it first opened, but it had pretty a pretty rugged bunker style. Um, Waterwood, uh, the second nine at Southern Hill, or third nine at Southern Hills, Hot Springs Country Club, mm-hmm. you know, all of those, all of those golf courses had that that look. Um, I, I think the impression you have is that that it was me who started that, and and what I'm saying is it wasn't. It was me who got a lot of attention for it, um, which I learned pretty quickly uh, not to try and ride too hard amongst my colleagues um, because the, while they kid me about or on it, this podcast yeah I guess <laughs> well they you know they they kid me about it a lot over the years and and you know Dave and, and Jimbo and, and especially Bill you know they still just give me a, a, a ton of grief over all this attention and and that's all fine and good but it it's pretty easy to understand that yeah it probably wasn't as deserved as it might have looked like, you know. So I I try to be as humble as possible about it. I mean, nobody's perfect, you know. I've I've said things or or taken shots at things that I probably shouldn't have over the years. I'm human and and I'm artistic, you know. And you put a bunch of artistic people in a small space, you're going to have some conflict, you know, because everybody's got a different idea and uh so you know, there have been times when those things were uh, let's just call it uncomfortable. <laughs> but I, I think I think if you're going to give anybody credit for this renaissance, so to speak, especially in the the bunker styling and the you know changing how greens are constructed and the form of them, it it really needs to come down to to Bill Ben and that group of guys that sort of spent years, you know, almost 10 years with nobody paying attention to what they were doing, you know, really refining that process, you know, and then I just happened to walk in, you know, right at, right at the time that the sand hills opened up and everybody went, Oh my gosh, would you look yeah. at this? You know, mm-hmm. this is, this is amazing. How, how does anybody, you know, how, how do you do something like that? You know, the truth of the matter is they just didn't do that much. That's why it was it was so good. 
because it was there, <laughs> you know. And uh, I, you know, if you 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 send a, a big firm, I'm not going to mention any names, but there's lots of famous golf architecture firms and golf construction companies out there. You send a, a crew like that out to the Sand Hills, and it probably gets blown up and looks like something that would have been built in Chicago, you know. So I, I think I think the real credit goes to to you know the guys who were there before me and who, who taught me how to do this stuff and, and Bill and Ben's vision because it was no one else's vision back at that at that point in time. You know, everybody was yep. you know Fazio and, and uh, <clears throat> uh, what's his name? Bill worked for uh, Die. Yeah, Pete, Pete Dye, uh, you know, those guys, uh, and Nicholas and Norman, but, you know, those guys ruled the day in the 80s, and uh, that's what everybody thought golf architecture was supposed to be, and Bill and Ben saw it differently, and and weren't afraid to do it, you know, and I, I'm sure that they could have accelerated their progress in business tenfold had they bought into that idea, but they didn't. You know, they, they held firm. They found clients that would let them do this different style of thing. Um, you know, thank God for Dick yeah. Young's cap. I mean, <laughs> you know, Dick called Pete Dye first about that Sandhills job. And, and yeah, I know the way Dick tells it, you know, Pete just said, nah, it's just too damn hard to get to, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and that's why he called Bill and Ben or called Ben probably. But, yeah, it, it has. I know what you're saying, and you're not wrong about that. I mean, a lot of people are trying to do stuff like that, and and it was kind of interesting watching that happen when it first started to happen because it wasn't very good in some cases. Um, and they were using old, you know, their their normal techniques to try and create something that we used a completely different process on. And uh, it, it's, you know, we've struggled working with contractors because contractors have a preconceived notion of, of how things are supposed to be. And I had to learn to understand where they were coming from, and, and I do now, but it's, it's very difficult to get those guys out of their means and methods box, you know doesn't make any sense to them to to work harder not smarter i guess you might say that's that's a line i've heard a lot from contractors well we try to work smarter not harder I'm like well it might turn out a little better if we work a little harder and less smarter yeah. you know that's kind of what i'm looking for um and so that's a it's a balance you have to you have to maintain sometimes when you're when you're in a situation like that. Sometimes you have complete full control over it. It's not an issue at all. Other times it is, but I think it must be a, a fascinating process to pull contractors into your world. You know, because for a lot of them, it's the first time that they've been exposed to this method of construction mm -hmm. that's completely antithetical to everything they've been taught or or been doing for the last X number of years, to say the least. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of it just depends on who is there on the project every day. 
you know, we've had projects with contractors that went really well, and we've had some that were a, a struggle from day one till till we left. Um, that generally comes down not so much to the company, but but to the folks who are on site. And um, you know, if you get lucky, it's it's fine, and if you don't, it's a it's a struggle. But you know, at, at this point. Uh, we can't really do it the way we used to do it, you know, where, where we, we kind of ran the whole show and, you know, labor was provided by the golf course superintendent. And once we were done with them, they rolled over into, into maintenance. I think Friar's head was probably the last time we did that. Might've happened some at Dormy club, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's been a while since that was the process. Uh, that was a lot more fun, you know, <laughs> when we when we just had us to get along with and worry about. It was a lot easier, um, and and I I think, you know, my favorite stuff that we've done, uh, saving a, a, a few things, is that early stuff. You know, the Notre Dame and uh, Friar's Head, Old Sandwich, Talking Stick, uh, and Jordan. Cuscawilla, you know, those are, those are, those were fun projects because we learned a lot on them and there wasn't a lot of conflict or, or outside intervention to worry about. So it, it got tougher when we started using contractors and, um, it, it's become more of a, at times you just have to be more diplomatic. And sometimes you have to accept some things that you just don't like, you know, because that's just kind of the way it is, <laughs> which which can be tough. But there, I, I keep getting off off track with your point. And your point was that a lot of people have have veered toward this style of architecture, and you're right about that. I mean, I've worked with some guys who've who've tried to do this kind of thing. Uh, Dana Fry's been one of them, and. Um, uh, the Palmer guys. Yeah. You know, Thad uh, and Brandon, Thad and Brandon have become great friends of mine. And, you know, I met them when that company was still in Ponte Vedra and uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They had me, uh, they flew me up to this thing in uh, North Carolina and we started it actually, but we started on the driving range and the par three course, which we actually finished and had just gotten started on the, on the 18 and the thing shut down. And so we never finished it, which was kind of a bummer. But um, I got a chance. I was done with Seminole, uh, not this last summer, but the one before that. And I was on my way home. I had nowhere to go. And I got a call from Thad, and he needed some help in California. He was working with uh, Brett Hockstein, you might think sure. you talked yep. to. You know. mm -hmm. And... Uh, they just needed a second hand, basically. So I actually got to get on a job and stay on a job for a little while working with that. And, you know, that and I became fr fast friends. You know, we we're both Southern boys who loved fishing and Republicans. And, <laughs> you know, we, we got along really well from the very beginning. But, they, you know, they do so much of their work outside of the country. And I just didn't, I didn't have to go out of the country. You know, I had work with Bill and Ben. And I didn't see any point in going to South America if I could work in North America, you know. 
So I, I never really took any of the stuff he offered me until this thing in California. But it turned out to be a lot of fun, you know, and um, and seeing Brett, you know, Brett's one of those guys who's kind of an up and coming young architect. And man, what a, a talented, talented guy, you know, just yeah, I'm sure that was a great experience for him. Well, I hope so. Yeah, I don't know. He's real quiet. You know, he he didn't have a whole lot to to say, but uh, I was really impressed with the stuff he had done. I, I just thought it was it was beautiful, and it it made me work a little harder. You know, I an old dog like me, I thought, well, be careful, these kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here they come. These kids might be a little more appealing, and they're probably a lot cheaper. <laughs> Whoops. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that, sharp, no, keep the edge sharp. Guys like that out there you know i know you've talked to uh to tyler and uh you know tyler did a little work with us at dormy club and he and i mm-hmm. remained friends over the years and there's all and kinds there's, of yeah there's a there's a keith and riley and yeah yeah it's 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 good to see that there's a there's a generation coming that believes in this stuff i'm sure there's a generation coming that doesn't as well but um i'm i'm hopeful for the future. I don't know how much work there's going to be in the future for golf course architects or shapers or construction companies. Um, well, speaking of that, aren't, weren't you scheduled to head to back to Nebraska for a project? I I am. I'm talking to, uh, is it King Collins? Yep. Rob Collins and Tad King are yep. building their landsman project in Nebraska. Yeah. That, that just came up. I mean, my plan for this year was to be in St. Lucia. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I guess I kind of got lucky and, and came home for my break and everything got shut down while I was at home. So I didn't have to worry about any of that. All my clothes are over there and I can't get my clothes back. So Uh-oh. <laughs> I've got to, uh, I think I'm going to have to, if Colum- the Columbia outlet stores open, I don't even know. I have to go buy <laughs> some clothes to go to work in Nebraska, assuming that thing happens. Um, and it, you know, Rob sounds really positive. I talked to him this week, so it still sounds like it's a go. Um, I told him I can stay until the end of May, and and we'd have to see, you know, what Bill had. I mean, Bill and Ben are are my priority, you know. And every time I talk to to other firms, I, I make sure that they know that, you know, I'm not just going to quit on you, but just need you to understand that. No, I think they do. I think everybody does. Every, everybody <laughs> has. Everybody yeah. has. You just be up front with them, you know, and and uh, Rob's been great about that. So we will see what happens. You know, you were, as we kind of wrap it up here, you were known for a particular, you and, and obviously Bill Core and everybody that we has, we've been talking about this whole podcast, are known for a particular style and a look and a naturalistic look. Is there a type of, or, or a medium of bunkering that, you haven't had a chance to do yet that you would like to try? <laughs> um, well, I've always wanted to do revetted bunkers. Uh, mm. That's gotten slapped down quickly every time I suggested it. So, uh, On what reasons? Uh, I think it's maintenance costs. They have to be redone every five years, which I think is a good business move on my part. But uh, yeah, doesn't seem to be <laughs> too appealing to bill or clients. So uh, I think that would be fun, you know. To I wonder how how artistic can you get with a revetted face? Well, I don't know. I mean, the face itself 
not so much. But I guess you can, you but know, you think the, of like uh, Hellbunker or something. It's got some like curvature and yeah, high the, and low. The surround, so to speak, the surrounding area of the bunker could be pretty neat, you know, and you could have humps on top of it and make it go in different directions. I, most of those things are, they're generally just like a little round circles with a, <coughs> excuse me, a red, a revetted face. But I think you could do some neat stuff with them, but Bill's not wrong about the maintenance. You know, they, you got to cut them out and rebuild them about every five years. So I don't see that ever happening. At least not with Kerr and Crenshaw, um, but that that would be one. Yeah, uh-huh. I don't I don't know what else there is. I mean, I, I certainly don't want to do, you know, just long, round, oval, straight, flat, typical, easy to maintain. <laughs> you know, yeah, heteronormative bunkering. <laughs> heteronormative yeah, yeah i listen to too much politics but uh, <laughs> i thought that was kind of funny <laughs> since it came to mind and came out of my mouth i don't know that uh-huh. may end it off for you right there Derek. there we go that's I a was, show folks i was sexist and <laughs> <laughs> whatever i'm just glad i didn't say it there you go oh. yeah you can know i have no control over what that guy does he's in arizona he's been cooped up for two weeks which uh, I don't want to say. I mean, I hate the word underrated, but maybe what's the what's the golf course that you've been involved building that's maybe the most underseen or not spoken about, or you wish more people had a chance to go experience? Um, boy, there's a couple of them. Um, I think Old Sandwich is a really interesting golf course. Uh, it's private, you know, and that's why people don't see it because you got to be a member or invited by one. That would probably be true of all of them. Um, if you could get on Long Island <laughs> and get on East Hampton at East Hampton Golf Club, Maidstone, or Friars Head, those are all three fantastic rounds of golf. Friars Head probably being the most exciting of the three. Um, Maidstone, Maidstone is just unendingly interesting, you know, because it changes every day with that, that peninsula and the wind and, uh, and East Hampton, you know, is, is just kind of fun golf. There's lots of room to play out there. Now, I guess they switched the nine, so I get a little confused, but it's the front nine that was in the woods when we built it. I think it's the back nine now. It gets a little tight back there, but the landing areas are pretty wide in most cases and uh, the greens aren't super wild, uh, but the field holes I think are, are some of the prettiest holes we've probably ever done. Mm-hmm. The field holes at East Hampton. And so I would say those, you know, um, anybody who wants to spend the money can go play band and trails or stream song. Uh, and you should, you know, there's, those are, those are great resorts. I'm really proud of the work we did in Dallas on that pile of trash, you know, Mm -hmm. that Trinity. Yeah. 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 That thing is, that's, that's a really fun golf course to play. Uh, Casey and his guys have just done a fabulous job with that new fescue or not. It's not fescue. It's Zoysia and making that thing play hard and fast. And you got lots of wind in Dallas. 
So, you know, that one's that one's private also. Almost impossible to get on. But, you know, if, if people get a chance, I, you know, it used to be you could write letters to the to the pro or to the president. And I guess if you made some sort of impression, they would figure out a way for you to to get on. So, you know, for kids in college who want to see stuff like this, uh, that, that may be one way to do it. But uh, there's just a lot of them, you know. I'm I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm proud of everything we've done. I, I can't think of anything that that I'm disappointed in, you know. I mean, we this team works really, really hard. There, there's and there's not a there isn't a whole lot of under the radar core Crenshaw courses out there. There's not that many to begin with, and most of them are, you know, at least for guys like you and I, they're they're at least known, if not well known. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, Branson. Uh, the one we finished in Branson a couple years ago probably hasn't gotten on the radar so much just yet. But if Johnny Morris has anything to do with that, he'll change that. I mean, uh, you know, that's a, that guy's a powerhouse <laughs> when it comes mm-hmm. to marketing. And and that was neat. And, uh, you know, and I know we don't want to go too long here, but the neat thing about what Bill's routing, you know, back to Bill's routing did there, you know, it's a, it's a mountain course in the Ozark Mountains. And what he did was put almost all of those holes up on top of the ridges rather than down between them, which which I think most people would have done. And it, it just made for a really interesting golf course. And you're always you're always up high, so you can see you can see the Ozarks. You know, you can see the, the you can't see the lake or anything, but you can see Branson from up there and just miles and miles of woods and trees and if you were down in the you know there's another golf course close to there where it's pretty much built down in the swales and from down there you don't see anything i mean you see the golf holes but you know from from most of our holes on that branson course you you can just see for miles and miles and miles yeah that's a cool concept it really is it really is to stay up there yeah mm mm-hmm (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I could see the temptation would be to like dip up and down and play off, you know, an elevated tee down to a valley. That would sucker in a, a lot of design and, and routings, but I, yeah. you know, leave it to build this, you know, buck the trend. Right. <laughs> well, there's, you know, there's some, there's some carries over that stuff in places. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to quickly think through the holes and talk to you at the same time, but I, I don't think there are any that really sit down in the, in the valley between the the mountain ridges, I think all the holes are pretty much on on the top, and uh, so th- that's a uh, that one's open to the public. You know, guys can go play that. I believe I'm, I'm yeah. sure it's expensive. Yeah, no, but, there's a, there's you know, a, a good bit. Of, there's a bit a good bit of the the ovoir that's open to the public. It's the a good ovoir? mix. What does that mean? The, <laughs> <laughs> You got me there the, with your the fancy whole, college. The total number of courses. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. There are there are a few. Yeah, I, I wish they were a little more accessible to the regular guy. That's you know, for, I, I mean, those guys have a business to run, and far be it from me to tell them they should lower their rates. You know, because I don't know what they're doing. But I've just learned that it's it's very expensive to go to places like Bandon or Streamsong. That's kind of unfortunate, you know. All right, let's let's finish up on this one. Okay. If you were to design your own golf course, okay, this is your it's your course, you're your own client. But I tell you because I 
I get to make the rule here. You have to import one set of bunkers into your golf course. What would that set be? One set of my bunkers? Yeah, one set of core. Actually, I'll, you know what? I'll just leave that open. You can It can be yours or somebody else's. Well, <laughs> I... Uh, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say, um, I'm going to say the bunkers at the Warren course at Notre Dame. Wow. I know. I don't think anybody (laughs) expected to hear that. I don't think anybody did either. Um, you know, they might be upset with me at Friarset over that one. Uh, Because those are really good bunkers at Friarset. Not bad, but I look back at 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 all of them, and I, I just feel like the stuff I did at the Warren Course really turned out well, and it has stayed that way. Um, maybe that's a budgeting issue; they can't do too much to them, so they don't. <laughs> I don't know, but I've always kind of been fond of of that golf course, you know, and it's not one that's gotten a lot of attention, but. Uh, I think it's pretty solid, you know. the The greens are really, really interesting. The bunkering's really interesting. Uh, fairways are rather mild, but uh, there's some neat par threes on that golf course. Number nine, and then uh, ten, eleven, kind of got that Yale swale in it. Uh, just some really neat stuff there. Good bunkering, but I also like. Uh, this is going to be kind of weird. I also like the bunkering. At- Cherokee Plantation with, that Donald Steele did. Um, that's sort of... is That's in South Carolina, yeah. I don't think a lot of people have seen that. No, I would imagine. Uh, I think it's seven figures to join that place. Uh, we I don't even know how we got on there. I know it was the guy at uh, uh, Chesey Creek made the call. We actually, while we were there, we met the guy who, who, did, who owns it. Uh, he was an interesting character. Did he know who you were? He had no idea who we were. Uh, in fact, he stopped us at the turn and had us come in and, and have a tea <laughs> and explain yeah. to him who we were. Uh, and he was fine, you know, with us being there. He thought yeah. that was kind of neat that we were building a, a golf course. He didn't have any idea who Bill and Ben were. <laughs> That's great. Uh, he was really nice, but... Um, that was that was an interesting experience, Cherokee Plantation. Well, d- describe the bunkers, and do you know who is who is responsible for building them? I do not. I I, I suspect it was a general contractor, um, but I don't know. You can't find a whole lot on what Donald Steele does. You know, he's, he's yeah. He doesn't have a few golf courses right. built in the United States. It's just not a lot of lot of info on him. Um. I, I don't know, but they, they you know, they're sort of like you would think of a revetted bunker without the re- stack revetted sod. You know, they, they just grassed them down. But the way they rolled the ground into them, you know, so if you got, they were pretty small, um, you know, square footage of bunker space. But if you got anywhere near them, your ball rolled into them. <laughs> you, just, you just could not test them at all you know and so it's you know if you, you're looking up there and you see us oh, you know the bunker floor is about 10 yards wide well he was going to get you from 10 yards outside of the bunker 
or short of the bunker, you know, a few yards over the top of it. I mean, it was just really, really interesting the way they did that. So if it wasn't mine, and I know that wasn't the question, but if it wasn't mine, something like that would be really neat to do. Heteronormative. Leave it to Jeff Bradley to find a way to insert that word into a golf architecture podcast. I'll admit that I had to look it up, and I'm still not sure how offensive it is in the context of a discussion about sand traps, uh, so I welcome help if anyone has input on that. Bradley rightfully gives credit to builders like Dave Axland and Dan Proctor for developing and perhaps even inventing the bunker shapes and styles that have for decades now set Core and Crenshaw courses apart from the field. But he's overly modest if he doesn't acknowledge his role as a bunker specialist for taking what he learned and moving the ball, or the art, for that's really what it is, down the field and putting his own language on it. His bunkers, even while they're different in concept and form on each course, they form a cohesive storyline from Cuscoilla through Talking Stick and the Warren course, to Friar's Head, Dormy Club, Streamsong Red, Ozark National, and many other places. I mean, he was the original, young, shaping rock star, who's now become one of the most respected deans of the profession. I thought it was interesting how he described the very early work of the bunker development at Cabot St. Lucia, how he envisioned something softer, and Dave Axland saw more intricate layers and fingers. Those are the kind of behind-the-scenes developmental conversations and discussions that happen on golf courses that we really are never privy to, and it'll be interesting years from now to look back on Cabot and see how that conversation actually progressed. I'd wanted to have Bradley on the podcast for years, but I wasn't sure he'd do it. So I'm pretty satisfied now that he came on and we talked for over two hours in, in so many different ways about Bunkers and the core Crenshaw team and his experiences in golf. We did get into a talk about drumming, but because we were running so long, I cut that segment out and I'll publish it at a later date as an outtake podcast. So if you're into music and you want to hear more about playing in bands, look for that. So I just want to thank Jeff Bradley for coming on and sharing all that. Remember to investigate the past episodes of the Feed the Ball podcast if you haven't explored those yet. You can always find me on social media at Feed the Ball. And coming your way soon is a new spinoff podcast, Feed the Ball Salon, starring me and co-host Jim Urbina. You can check him out in episode 61. And we'll answer your golf and architecture questions and also have on other guests from the world of golf design and construction. Send questions for those episodes to me on Twitter or at Derek underscore Duncan at discovery.com. So once again, thanks to Jeff Bradley. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until the next episode, and we get a chance to do this again, adios.